Yes, I remember everything. I know who I am. I am the doctor. I am the doctor. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that's built up its own little army of followers over the past 15 months, and we've just celebrated our 10,000th listen. Woo! <laughs> We're carrying on our trip through those sections of the Doctor Who universe that feature the incarnation of the Time Lord as played by Paul McGann. I'm Rebecca Chapman. And I'm Kenny Smith. You join us as we resume our quest to feature the eighth Doctor's exploits, whether on screen, in novellas, Books, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books. Uh, what else could you have? Um, fridges, um, homeware, spatulas, pizza cutters. Oh, 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 oh. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I saw a fridge magnet and I also saw a coaster. Oh, were they specifically yes. Doctor Who? They were specifically Eighth Doctor. Doctor oh, Who. wow. And did you lay your eyes, ears and hands upon them? I mean, I didn't touch them to my ears, but I definitely sniffed them. Does that count? Okay. And did you lick them? <laughs> no, no, I didn't lick them. Okay. And <laughs> they have were you ever... in plastic wrapping. It wouldn't help. <laughs> no, I haven't. No, and I just clarify, neither have I. But <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll not go there. No. <laughs> Hello, Becca. How are you? You've got the giggles because we're giggling at something that we've just cut out and the listeners aren't ever going to know. But um, No, no, they're not, because that was horrendous. Yes, it was. But if oh. if that but yes, I definitely would if it was an opportunity. Probably. <laughs> no, you would, trust me. Trust my judgment on this. Anyway. I, I uh, will trust your judgment. Yes, quite. Um, but anyway, how are you? You're looking very well today and you've got a handy new little gadget there, haven't you? I have indeed. My uh, my my father has given me my Christmas present early so that I could... Because, okay, so my laptop broke. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was on its last legs anyway and it's now just a very expensive doorstop. Um <laughs> So I was I finished my university to my last year of university doing everything on my phone. Oh, and do. so my father has kindly given me my Christmas present early, which is a little book. So that's nice. Well, thank you to Mr. So Becky's we are dad. All yeah. And also, have you been able to retrieve your files that you needed to retrieve from the old laptop? Yes. Yes, I have, yeah. Good, because when I had my troubles earlier this year, I'd spent two hundred quid and I didn't have 200 quid spend really, but I had to do it because I needed my computer because I was still in my old job before I got this wonderful new work laptop, which I'm using to record on today as I'm in the office and work is finished for the day. But yeah, it is good. I'm in Glasgow, the heart of Glasgow, overlooking George Square, and it's a wonderful view, although it's a little dull and cloudy and I'm going to have to walk back because of the train strike to get my car, which is about an hour and a half. But hey, that's not a problem. (laughs) Well, I am in the heart of Southampton. And I can't really see anything from my window, but I'm very close to the bar gate, so... Yes, yes you are. 
because I was down and I was very close by to yours <laughs> without even realising it a few months ago. So, uh, oh well. Shall we get on with the podcast? <laughs> Let's get going. So now and again, we get bits of Eighth Doctor news, such as the news of the new three-pack of action figures, and we are chatting about them next week, and new releases from Big Finish, starring Paul McGann. So, Kenny, do you have anything new to share in this week's episode? I do indeed, Becca, because as you know, I do like to keep my finger on the pulse when it comes to Doctor Who podcast, not just because I work for the NHS, especially if there's an eighth Doctor angle to them. And I'd like to give a wee mention to our friends over at the all-new Doctor Who Book Club podcast, who recently gave us a mention in one of their episodes, saying that we are well worth a listen, and that was very kind of them. So I wrote back and thanked them, and my letter is read out in their latest edition, which dropped on the 15th or 16th. And appropriately for us, they are looking this month at the 8th Doctor BBC book, Earthworld, which was written by Jacqueline Rayner. Have you heard any of their episodes yet, Becca? I'm really sorry, I'm playing with a piece of cardboard. I haven't. <laughs> I I haven't got round to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that bit of cardboard, it looked like you had a large moustache or you looked like something out of Mario Brothers or something like that. It was that ridiculous. Is that me, America? <laughs> <laughs> with a moustache? No, no, don't, don't say that. <laughs> That's quite um, stereotypical, so we're not going to go there. Apologies to all our listeners. I was, I was... I was I was just doing it's a me, a Mario. Yes, that's okay. You're forgiven. Anyway, Thank the, you. <laughs> but podcast, no, I haven't I haven't got around to listen to them yet. They're very yeah, right. I haven't got around to listen well, to them yet, and I'm very upset about this. So I need well, to do it. Hugely recommended, as they've previously covered other EDAs such as Trading Futures and Father Time, and the Mister Men book Doctor Eight, as well as the BBC Short Trips collections, which we featured bits of and Earthworld is in their 66th episode. So a big hello and a thank you to Matt in Minnesota and Chris in South London for giving us a mention in their latest edition. And I hugely recommend that all our listeners give their podcast a listen if they're a fan of Doctor Who in print and the Eighth Doctor episodes are, of course, especially good. Anyway, today we're not talking about Doctor Who in print as we're discussing someone whose most famous works were printed. Oh, that, that, that was smooth. That was really smooth. We're going to finish our look at the Mary Shelley trilogy from Big Finish, starring Paul McGann and Julie Cox. So far in this run, we've covered Mary's story, The Silver Turk and The Witch from the Well. And finally, we're getting to the concluding adventure in the series, Army of Death. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who. Army of Death. Death, death, death. Bones. Moving bones. Listen, those skeletons are returning. They say he came to consider himself godlike. His cult grew within society like, a, like an infection until it engulfed Garrick. After a traumatic event like Garrick's destruction, fear settles like a frost. Paranoia bites hard. And who do you trust? What's your name, prisoner? We're travellers. Strangers in a strange land. Skeletons! An army of the living dead! Mary, stay close to me. We're surrounded. The dead, sir! The dead are coming! They're being ripped apart! Look! Skeletons, thousands of them, heading towards Stronghaven. You cannot stop death. Is there anyone who doesn't want to shoot at us today? It's no good. How do you kill the dead? Death is relentless. No! It's the only way. 
Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com. It was released in December 2011, and Army of Death was the 155th release in the monthly range, and was written by Jason Arnott. And until 2021, this was the last Eighth Doctor story to be featured in the monthly range until the end of the beginning. And now, it's the moment I know you all love, I do, when Becca gets her reading voice on and goes, the full Charlotte Elspeth Pollard. Oh, blimey. I'm going to develop a, uh, a thing. <laughs> <clears throat> the TARDIS brings the Doctor and Mary Shelley to the continent of Zalonia on the frontier world Draxine, where many moons ago the twin city-states of Garrick and Stronghaven were testament to mankind's colonial spirit. That was before the sinister death cult of Garrick's President Harmon took hold and Garrick annihilated itself utterly in an apocalyptic explosion. Before the bones of Garrick's dead came back to life and its skeletal citizens began marching, marching, marching on Stronghaven. But what do they want this army of death and can anything stop them? In search of answers, the Doctor and Mary must journey into the dead heart of a dead city to face a terrifying adversary whose ambitions transcend the stuff of life itself. Thank you very much for that. Beautifully done in one take, as always. So, you're going to keep up the tradition <laughs> of giving us a Mary Shelley fact of the day. Indeed I am. I'm hoping, because it's been quite a while since we uh, first recorded all of these and I was like, ooh, Mary Shelley fact. <laughs> but... I have one and I may have mentioned I think I've mentioned in a previous one that Mary Shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave you did yes I did right so <laughs> Mary Shelley's mother's grave also had another purpose in it actually taught Mary how to spell her name in that she traced the embossed name on her grave until she was able to get it right herself that's a very useful thing to do with a gravestone. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something. Do you know, there's actually, um, I'm not going to mention names, of course, but there is a guy who used to work at the Glasgow Evening Times who got the nickname Spook because he was in the habit of going out clubbing and taking girls back to the local graveyard that was near the office. So he was known as Spook. But um, <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting thing to do at the end of a night out, I suppose. And um, yeah, it was a grave matter, but um, oh well, I'm sure there was a stiff involved somewhere. A very, but, very grave matter. Mm, so, yes. So, let's have a quick chat about the story. It's quite an, an interesting one because I think for an audio story, it's very visual given that we've got armies of skeletons on the march. Yes, march that you kind of expect with marching skeletons, even though that's not a thing that any of us will have ever witnessed. <laughs> yeah. But you can you can definitely hear and imagine the clanking of bones together. And it is very vis visceral. Is visceral the word I'm looking for here? I think visual rather than visceral. <laughs> I think visceral would be more inclined to be blood and guts, whereas obviously skeletons do not have blood nor indeed guts. <laughs> we'll go with this visual, is, shall we? <laughs> this is, yes. Yes, let's just pretend I said visual. 
Yeah, we did. You did say visual. <laughs> I just misheard you, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, mm, it's, yes, it's very entertaining. This one, I think, the fact that you've got such a great cast in there. Uh, David Harewood is Valen, uh, given that, he, and he's sort of his career has just gone stratospheric since this, given that he's done Supergirl and tons of other stuff. Um, Carolyn Pickles is brilliant as Mira Daron and Eva Pope as Nia Briscoe, what a voice. And then of course there's the wonderful Mitch Ben who's playing just about every other part in here being, and I just think it's, I think they're a really good mix thing just, and the thing about Mitch is you would never know he was playing so many parts. No, he's very good at differentiating characters. Yeah, and I'm, I'm particularly when he gets to do the, the stuff as the Bone Lord at the end and sort of, how do you voice a skeleton that's just huge and made out of bones? I will destroy you, humans. Silence, madcap. <laughs> that, I've, gone, I've, I've gone the full Dr. Claw there. Which is also, it's, it's slightly... But it was good, it was good. I was impressed. Well, thank you. It's, it's I'd say, it's, it's deeper than Jadun. We are more, thou shalt vote, now go. And uh, I'm resisting the urge to cough here because I really feel that I need to, but I'm not going to. And I think it's also, <laughs> there's also some great stuff in here, like the flybots and things like that, buzzing around and carrying the doctor from place to place. And yeah, I was uh, very impressed by that. But when it comes to this sort of story, do you prefer off-world stories or those with more of an earthly feel? Oh, I feel, sorry, that was a strange noise. I feel like um, it depends on my mood. I usually try and go for those that are more off-world because I'm a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy and ooh, look, planet. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, self-proclaimed Trekkie yeah. <laughs> and Star Wars lover, <laughs> you know, off-world things sit with me really well. But I think that the earthly the earthly feeling ones, especially when they go back in time, probably sit on my favourite. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. I can't choose. What about you? Yeah. <laughs> so I quite like the fact the world building that goes on here is great. The fact that we've got um, the city-states of Garak and Stronghaven, which are set up, we do get a good feel for them. The fact that there's been this devastation and the betrayal, and uh, we discover there's a lot more to it than we thought. So I, I don't, I, I think I quite like, I quite like sort of earthy ones. I do like contemporary stuff I and mean, stuff that you know, Russell T excels at or those. But this one, it's maybe slightly more serious and it's not, there's not a lot of room for the, the bit of silliness and fun that I'm quite partial to, which is why I love a lot of what Russell T does. But I mean, I still enjoyed it. And one of the things that really contributed were the music and sound design from this from Kelly Ellis. The score is brilliant, very atmospheric, very moody, very, very electronic. And it sounded great. I mean, just the sounds of an army of skeletons, we all know what we think they should sound like. So how would you go about creating that if you didn't have a load of bones to hand if you're not a murderer? So I don't think Kelly is a murderer. So unless he is a really good one and nobody's ever found out. But I'm not implying in any way that Kelly Ellis is a murderer. Just to clarify, if anybody wants to me, especially Kelly, I'm not saying that you're a murderer. So, yes. <laughs> Quite. Anyway. Just potentially a closet one. Yeah. No, don't say that. He's going to sue. Stop it. Anyway, shall we meet our first guest now? Because um, we asked uh, the writer of Army of Death, Jason Narnip, if he'd like to take part, but he politely declined. However, we do have someone who's going to join us to tell us about the story's development and the trilogy as a whole. And we're absolutely delighted to welcome script editor Alan Barnes on for a very rare podcast chat. 
Alan very rarely does these things and he's going to come on and tell us about the Mary trilogy and how it came to be and indeed how it all came to be with the start of Mary's story and he'll also tell us why there weren't any more adventures for the Doctor and Mary. So let's welcome Alan Barnes. Hello, um, I'm Alan Barnes and I uh, script edited um, Army of Death and the Mary Shelley stories. Alan, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I just wonder if you could maybe tell us a wee bit about bringing back Mary from her one-off appearance. Well, Mary was, uh, as you know, it, it, Mary, all that came about, about because of the, um, the little prologue scene I wrote in Storm Warning, where the Doctor sort of is, is remembering, sort of, you know, uh, he's, um, he's reading from Frankenstein, sort of saying, oh, it wasn't like that, you know, whatever. And that only came about because I was, I was asked, when I started writing Storm Warning, Guy Russell asked me, can you just write, you know, the Doctor talking to himself a bit? Because we're going to want to hear um, Paul McGann's voice because it was it had a, a real exclusivity at the time. It was really exciting to hear McGann being the Doctor, and we wanted to just get over the shock of of hearing him, you know. And so we just wanted to like, introduce to something rich, and, and 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 I just plucked out a passage really. I think it had sort of you know Frankenstein sort of sat on the shelf somewhere. And I just sort of and I wanted it to be something recognisable and also sort of dramatic. And also, there's the comparison. You know, it's mentioned a bit. It's there's a lot of the Frankenstein stuff in the actual TV movie, so that was a sort of chime. Uh, it sort of chimed with that as well. Just look at the binding on this one. Published 1831 and in mint condition too. Now, isn't this the edition with the preface all about that time? When... Yes, yes, it is. In the summer of 1816, we visited Switzerland and became the neighbours of Lord Byron. At first, we spent pleasant hours on the lake or wandering on its shores but it proved a wet, ungenial summer and incessant rain confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories fell into our hands. We will each write a ghost story, said Byron. There were four of us. Well, that's wrong for a start. I busied myself to think of a story, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature to curdle the blood and quicken the beatings of the heart. Oh, Mary, Mary, if only you could have told the real story. Emergency stop, but that's not happened in centuries. And, he, and he, he just, when I was typing, he sort of spontaneously said, oh, Mary, Mary wasn't like that, or whatever he says. I can't remember exactly what he says. He just says, oh, Mary, it wasn't quite like that, as you know, kind of thing. And I put in a few more references to that sort of unseen story, you know, and a few other sort of, you know, whenever he came round up after being not as unconscious, he'd sort of like, oh, Mary, Bob, what's all that? You know, just as a running joke kind of thing. And the thought, you know, when we came to do, I think it's the Company of Friends, you know, the, the one with, the, which was a, a, a four by one part, or a, an audio four one part, as an anthology, um, with four companions we hadn't seen before, you know, one were, or, or hadn't had in the main range before, you know, one was, was Benny, one was Izzy from the comic strips, one was Fitz from the books. And just as a, just sort of, almost as a joke, really, I, 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 I made, I asked Johnny Morris to do the, the one with Mary Shelley just to tell this story. Let's just tell the story. What the hell? And suddenly we had a new companion. We were doing, and, and everyone really liked it. And it just seemed like a bit of a no-brainer to just, um, well, okay, let's just do a trilogy. Let's do, let's do a trilogy of Mary Shelley book adventures. Uh, you know, Mark Platt did the first because that was very much, you know, his sort of territory. And to wrap it up, we wanted, because I, I, Mary Shelley didn't just write Frankenstein. Uh, I mean, wanted something that was going to um, sort of foreshadow something else that she did, you know. Um, so it's it's called, um, I've got to get the title, but I can't quite remember it now. It's called The Last Man, isn't it? 
the uh, the, the the other one. I will just actually. <laughs> I am. I can't remember now. Um, uh, I think it's called The Last Man, and it's sort of very much in a sort of apocalyptic sort of waste, wasteland sort of story, which we just thought would be interesting, just to sort of you know let's 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 see you know what else she might have brought into it. So that's what I asked Jason to do. Yeah, it's a sort of apocalyptic dystopian novel, sort of you know. Um, so we wanted sort of something that was, you know, that she, that much of the story that she could have, in in the sort of H.G. Wells timeless style that you know she'd have she'd have sort of seen and then sort of like drawn on a bit, you know, in in her writings because <laughs> we've got this terrible idea when we do sort of characters like this they they can't actually dream of anything themselves they have to just take it from life. <laughs> I thought it was a great trilogy. Really enjoyed it and. Um... I always kind of hoped that we'd get those other adventures that are talked about. I think there's ones that hinted at with axons and other such trips, but who knows? Well, you know, I I, I, yeah, I know we did hint at other at other ones, but I mean, I I think I felt. I mean, I didn't stop it from happening or anything. It just you know, they just sort of you know, they just sort of fizzled out really. I, I felt that having sort of we we'd done the. It's, it was wrong to say it's a joke. It wasn't a joke, but I mean, you know. It would have made it into a much bigger thing than it was ever meant to be. I think if we'd have expanded, and I, I thought the idea of doing of, of an un, of an unseen adventure with Mary Shelley and the Axons was funnier than the reality of an unseen adventure with Mary Shelley and the Axons. I, you know, I, it, it's um, sometimes less is more, and sometimes just the, you know the, the sort of you know the sort of hint of something enticing is sort of you know erotically interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, you know, it's it's, it's got a, it's, it, the, the tease is is funnier than the reality, uh, and and is is better than the reality, really. You know, I I, I thought that was quite a fun. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's a fun idea that you know, but um, yeah, no, I mean it was it was it was a great little thing. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not in charge of this sort of thing anymore. But you know, I, mean, I wouldn't resent anyone doing anything in future. But you know, I just felt that we had. It, it felt actually, I think the reason with the reason we didn't do more was simply that you know we just had so many other fish to fry in the in the yeah, sort of ways we had so many other things to do that we just never quite found the time to do, do it. Fantastic, Alan. Thank you very much for that. No worries. Huge thanks to Alan for his time. We actually had a natter when I was speaking to him for Vortex. That's the Big Finish magazine you can find to read for free at www.bigfinish.com forward slash Vortex. I'm told it's quite a decent read, actually. Anyway, at this point, I should confess that I know uh, I know absolutely nothing about any of Mary's other writings, which Alan just mentioned. Uh, we're talking about the real Mary Shelley here. Do you know any of them at all? Because he did mention that this one was influenced by something else that she'd written. Ah, so um, obviously I read Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, <laughs> but I did also read Maurice. Mm-hmm. I believe it was. Yeah. And Matilda. Matilda. Mm-hmm. He's one of the two. I cannot remember <laughs> how that one's pronounced. Oh well, so at least you've you've done, you're you're one up in me because I only really know. Uh, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. So there we go. Look at you getting in the real name. I love that. That's great. <laughs> it's like, only because it's in storm. I think, <laughs> I, I think it's in storm warning. That's why I remember it. I could be wrong, but I'm sure it's. I'm sure I've read it somewhere, or it's heard it through Doctor Who. I think it could be. Well, our second guest this week had several roles in Army of Death, including Commander Raynor, Carnix, Harmon, a skull, and a journalist, Mitch Ben. 
<laughs> I love Mitch. You often get to hear him on Radio 4, and particularly when he does his songs, he's brilliant. And I was lucky enough to get him involved with Big Finish Day online a couple of years ago, which I remember you were watching, Becca. And he had a fantastic fun panel right at the start of the day with Toby Haydock and John Coulshaw, three brilliant comedians and all huge fans of the show. And as we record, Mitch is currently in Edinburgh, so if you have got the chance to go along and see the show, please do. He's going to give us some details in a wee minute. So, let's meet Mitch. Yeah, hi, my name is Mitch Ben, comedian, songwriter, science fiction author, occasional voice actor, turned up in two big finishes thus far. And I believe today we're going to be talking about the first of those, which was um, Army of Death with Paul McGann. Absolutely. Uh, First things first, of course, you're a big Doctor Who fan. Um, when we spoke yeah. uh, previously a couple of years ago, was, I remember having heard you on Radio 4 and thought, this guy's a bit of a geek, he knows his Doctor Who stuff. And then when I saw you in, at Cult TV in Western Supermare 1999, I thought, yeah, this oh guy's. Yeah. No, the, the funniest development of that was um, it was the first time I met Nicola Bryant. I and everybody in my generation had an insane crush on when she was Perry in the 80s. And uh, she was doing a panel before me, and then she went off down in the merchandise room. Because I'd done, I'd done like a, a turn, I think, on the Saturday night. Then on the Sunday morning, I did like a little one-man panel just talking about fandom, you know. Um, so Nick had done her bit, and then she was off down to the merchandise room, I think, to sign things. And she had, over the course of her... Um, interview had confessed that one of her mad childhood crushes had been on the previous day was michael billington from ufo <laughs> had been on yeah you know, paul foster from you and she was going out about how she had this insane crush on um michael billington and paul foster and then so i'm doing the next interview and somebody said you know did you have any childhood crushes i said yeah it was nick of course it was you know, <laughs> you know she's gonna confess to the fact that she had an insane crush on michael billington when she was like 12 13. that's nothing that a crush i had on her when i was 14 seriously you know <laughs> and then it came up on the screen that you know oh by the way she can hear this in the merch <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I mean, come on, I'm a, I'm a Doctor Who fan who was 14 when she was on. I think she knows, you know? <laughs> you know so everybody who was 14 in 1984 had an insane crush on Nick, you know? But, but then we got the train back to London together, which was really cool. We had a big, long chat about, about sort of um, actors and fandom in general, because there were certain actors who were notorious convention tarts who would just turn up to convey. I think even when they hadn't been booked, they were just, uh, you would get ones who would be terribly sort of aloof and Martin Shaw about everything. It would sort of, you know, um, never, and never turn it. And then you got the ones who are just absolute tarts. Michael Sheard was a notorious convention tart. Exactly. Uh, that was the name that sprang to mind from my head here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> notorious convention tart. He apparently, at one year at Cult TV, turned up on the Saturday night and did an interview about, you know, oh, the half a dozen times he was in Doctor Who and when he was in Blake Seven and when he was in Indiana Jones and when he was in Empire Strikes Back and everything. And then on the sun Sunday morning, he brought the Mr. Bronson toupee. <laughs> And apparently he uh, took registration of all the hungover people in the hall <laughs> in character as Mr. Bronson. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so yeah, Michael Sheard. But I was talking about, I remember talking about this, I mean, this is talking about, you know, 23, 23 years ago now, but I had a big long conversation about how some of them love it and some of them hate it. And she said, well, you know, one of the things is, I guess, a lot of people get into acting in order to be sort of, 
you know, famous and fawned all over by fans, you know. And for most actors, certainly most actors in Britain, that never really happens, you know. We're, we're, they just sort of toil away on the lower slopes of repertory and get in the odd advert for most of their entire lives. And then, but suddenly, you know, they turn up to one of these things and they're rock stars. So obviously it's, it, it's got, you know, quite a pull for um, some of them. But you know, a lot of people never touch it. But yeah, so so you were at cult, cult TV, Connor. You know, Alex Gerns is gone, don't you? Yes, I do, sadly, yeah. I was Alex Gerns. All right, for the folks at home, Alex Gerns was this big gregarious guy from, was it Wolverhampton he was from? I think, and he used to run cult TV and he'd been, I first met him at the eight, in the 80s, a, a prisoner Port Mericon in I think 1986 so I would have been about 16 and he would have been about 21 we were both very very young uh but we've been bumping into each other ever since you know me doing bits and bobs for him at Cult TV and everything and he died sadly about three years ago now and I went to his funeral and absolutely cracked us up because you know they play a bit of music as the coffin trundles off through the curtains yeah, Alex trundled off to Thunderbirds. Off he went through the car. I was just pissing myself laughing. So yeah, so Alex got the last laugh there. But yeah, he's gone, Alex Gens has gone. But that's that's the age we are, Ken. I know. That's what one of my show is about in Edinburgh. It's called It's About Time. And part of it is about, you know, being constantly slapped in the face with your own mortality, you know. And then when you, when you get to your 50s, like I am, and I assume you can't be far off it if you were caught TV in 99. Anyway, let's talk about whatever the hell it is we're going to be yes. able to talk about. It's something that we always ask our guests is, where they were when they first saw the TV movie. And I'd imagine with you, of course, being a, a fellow scouser of Mr. McGann, it'd be his casting would have caught your eye as well. Oh yeah, obviously, I mean, I've been, I've been aware of Paul since um, at least, no, at least Monocle Mutineer, and then obviously with Mel, which is like a sort of a, a sort of, a, you know, an, an, an emblematic movie for my entire thing. You know, it, it was, although it was set, you know, in the, um, in, you know, 1969, it came out in 87, and then I was a student in 1882, and it was the ultimate student movie with Nail, because just that flat they were living in was just like every flat we were trying not to live in, you know, and then, uh, so With Nail was a massive cult movie with the students at the end of the 80s and the 90s. And um, yeah, and also just growing up in Liverpool. I mean, I think the first McGann I was aware of was probably Mark, because I think he played John Lennon in the stage play just after he died. And then of course he played him in a movie, John and Yoko Love Story, in which George is played by a very young Peter Capaldi. So yes, and obviously the Beatles connection continues because it's not the one we're talking about now, but the second of the two big finishes I did with this thing called Fanfare for the Common Men which came out in uh, 2013 because they were doing for the 50th anniversary, they did a bunch of stories that in some way related back to 1963. And this was the one about the Beatles in which I kind of played John Lennon, except I wasn't John Lennon, I was an alien who thought he was John Lennon. <laughs> well, I was quite fun that, doing the Lennon voice, you know, I was there for a few days. Uh, I think I did all of them for the audition tape, I did all four of them, I wasn't sure which one of them they were going to want to use, you know, but the anti for John in the end, so I did that. Um, so yeah, that was quite fun. And then, obviously, I think Mark was the first one to rise to prominence in Liverpool, and then it became apparent that there was, oh my God, there's four of them, you know, and uh, and of course the other, the other guy, though, is, is Dave Morrissey, who's kind of the unofficial fifth McGann because he knew them growing up in Liverpool and they got him into acting. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, so, but it was nice to get to work with Paul. 
He is the most laid-back guy you've ever met. He's so cool. He really is. <laughs> He's ridiculously laid-back. He just takes everything so easy. And my primary memory of Army of Death, actually, was being hungry because I was on a particularly vicious diet. And I'm sure the one thing everybody tells you about Big Finish is how good the food is that they lay on in the studio. They've got like their own bespoke studio in Labrick Grove. Because the way it works with Big Finish, I've done a lot of audio drama and not oftentimes you're sort of, you're around one mic or you're in a studio with several mics. The way they do it in Big Finish is the room has like a ring of, I think it's like eight soundproof booths each with its own microphone in it, but with a glass front so you can all see each other. So you're all sort of standing. They look like the thing that Richard Todd trundles round in in Kinder. There you go, there's a reference <laughs> to the hardcore yeah. And you're all stuffed into these, these weird sort of foam boxes with your microphone. But what it means is you get to run the scene as live, all doing your own lines as and when they come up. But the from the engineer's point of view, each character is coming in on a completely clean vocal track. So it makes the edit that much easier, you know, because you know, there's no overlap between the various channels. You know, you can't hear the other. Each each actor is on his own completely um, separate channel, and uh, yeah, that's one of the ways they can turn those things out with you know an incredible speed and volume that they do. Yeah, you must have been really excited when you got the Barnaby Edwards' as director got in touch with you to invite you to uh, take part. I think that was lovely. I, I, I think I think I actually heard from the like great Paul Sprague. I think that was the oh. was, well. That was a terrible, terrible fright. Paul was a, one of the producers on Big Finish, and uh, his girlfriend was a very good friend of mine, Natalie. And, and he just dropped dead one day at the age of about thirty-eight or something, was he? Yeah. But yeah, so I think it was the late great Paul Sprague who called me and asked me if I wanted to be at this thing. And when I actually got there, I discovered I was actually playing three or four parts. They just initially engaged me to play this kind of captain of the guard character. Can't actually remember what he's called to my shame. But Commander he's kind of Raynar. A... There he is, Commander Raynar. But he's just your kind of standard kind of captain of the guard character. He's sort of very stern and implacable and talks like this. Um, and that was all I thought I was doing. But then I got there and, and in the finale, when the sort of the evil president transforms himself into a kind of mecha zombie thing that stomps through the city, I was the voice of that as well. And that was immense good fun, being a sort of, you know, putting on a proper kind of monster voice. That was great fun. And uh, David Harewood was there, of course, as well, before he was the Marquis de Carabas and before he went off and got famous in Supergirl because um, he was there as well. And uh, and yeah, yeah, so I, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think I was just there for the one day, or was it there for two? I don't know, it's a while ago now, it's over 10 years ago, it's about 2011. Yeah. Um, I can't remember, what I do know, as a sort of slightly embarrassing footnote, that I totally put my foot in it thereafter, because the companion was Julie Cox playing Mary Shelley. And I just happened to casually tweet that I'd had a good day recording with Paul McGann and Julie Cox, and they hadn't announced that Julie was coming back as a regular. So I let that cat up the bag, and I'm not entirely sure Nick Briggs has ever forgiven me for that. So, um, yeah, that was me in the doghouse for a little while, and I may even need still be in the doghouse, I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, I didn't know through not following Big Finish as deciduously as I guess as, as some of did, but that wasn't known yet that, that Julie was going to be the companion for that season. But yeah, so I, I kind of uh, kind of pissed on my own chips there, I'm afraid. But yeah, <laughs> yes, that's that. Uh...
I do remember that incident, yeah. And uh, oh gosh, I, I felt for you because it's so easily done. Yeah, I just didn't know. So I've been very careful about that kind of thing ever since. <laughs> you know, what, what I can't say and yeah. when, you know, very carefully find out about that kind of thing. Yeah, it yeah, must have been really good for you though, as um, as a Doctor Who fan, getting to actually play the main villain of a story, being with Carnex and Harmon, and just and, and of course a skull and a journal as well. So got a good few credits keeping you yeah. earning your corn that day. <laughs> well, I'm very used to that. You know, I'm very used to playing lots of different parts in audio dramas. That's what you tend to do. You you know, you get an ensemble cast and just whoever's there just fills in the rest of the parts. You know. I mean, just recently, uh, I did the Sandman audio for uh, Dirk Maggs uh, <laughs> um, and I was playing, in, in season one, I play Funland, who's a fat paedophile serial killer. You can imagine I was overjoyed when I got that email. <laughs> Guys, whatever made you think of me? You know, uh, <laughs> but, but he's actually, a, you know, he's, he's, he's actually quite a, a prominent character in, in, in the first series. And then in the second series, I played Thor. Now, this is actually the second time I've played Thor for Dirk because I played Thor in the last radio season of Hitchhikers, which was based on the Owen Colfer book, in which Thor has a duel with Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged. And for that, I just played Thor as really kind of loud and stupid and Danish. Um, so I did it with this sort of accent like this. Um, but for Sandman, they decided to make all the Norse gods Scottish because they cast David Tennant as Loki. And I don't know if you've read Sandman, but this is one of those, this is up there with like Patrick Stewart as Professor X. Because you know, when they finally made the X-Men movie in 2000, pa of course Patrick Stewart as Professor X, because Professor X has always been drawn as Patrick Stewart, even a good 10 years before anybody knew Patrick Stewart was, you know. Um, <laughs> The comic, he's always been Patrick Stewart. Um, but Loki and Sandman, as opposed to, you know, the Marvel Loki, was drawn as tall and thin with a long pointy face and red hair that sticks straight upwards. So he was already being drawn as David Tennant in like 1991. You know? um, so of course they asked David, and of course he said yes, because Dirk can get anybody to say yes to anything. Um, but that meant I had to play uh, Thor with a kind of West Coast Scotland action on this occasion. and. Um, uh, at the time, I, my girlfriend was from uh, Prestwick, so I was getting her to... Because my own, my own Scottish accent is mostly Edinburgh, because I used to live here for a long time, you know, so trying to take him more with the race course like that. And Leslie was sort of helping me run the lines. And I was in the studio in Acton, but David did his bit down the line from his place in Chiswick. And the thing about David is he's got incredible presence even when he's not in the room, you know, it's just this voice coming out of the speakers. And I said, you know, you know, my girlfriend's been helping me run the lines. Oh, that ought to do, he said, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I was, um, I was uh, in Sandman for that. But you do find yourself playing lots of different parts because you're just in the building, you know. Can you get in and read it? Oh, right, you know, so. But it's all part of the fun, you know, it really is. Yeah. Of course, as a cult TV fan, you must have been delighted to work with Trevor Cooper from Star Cops as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, Star Cops. There's a much more. Is that still on Britbox? Because it was on Britbox when so. Britbox started. So I watched a few of them. Star Cops. That's a much maligned series. Again, sort of a classic example of you know, 80s BBC sci-fi's reach it over you know, uh, you know, being longer than its grasp. And, and I think part of the trouble with it was is the I don't think. Well, the irony of the title isn't immediately apparent to anybody who's watching it, you know what I mean? Because the thing about Star Cops is it was a deliberately ironic title because the story was about how trying to be the police in space would be the most miserable and least glamorous job imaginable. 
And StarCops is this annoying tabloid label that they get appended with when the uh, the first, you know, off-world police unit gets formed. That, you know, the papers start calling them the StarCops, much to their disgust. But the trouble is, I think the name StarCops, just out there in the TV listings, made the whole thing sound a lot cheesier than it actually was. So there was a nice idea at the time, but I think it might have backfired on them a bit because it was an attempt to do really hard sci-fi, you know, really within the limits of known science sci-fi. You know, what would the scientific practical implications of having a permanent research and or commercial community in space B, what are the legal ramifications for trying to police something like that? And what would the practical ramifications be of actually trying to police something like that? You know, and so it was an attempt to do sort of really kind of quite serious hard sci-fi, but with a deliberately ironic cheesy title. But I think all anybody saw was the deliberately ironic cheesy title of StarCops gonna be yeah, but that was that was fun getting to work with the yeah Star Cops guy. That was fun. Yeah, what did you think when you heard the CD back uh, when you got it through the post? It must have been quite a thrill to hear what they'd done oh, to your yeah, voice. It oh, it is, it is. But it's always a thrill to hear voice back, particularly the fact that you know to the end when I'm playing the uh, you know the mecha zombie, there's no way of telling that it's me, and I quite like that. I like the uh, I quite like it when it, you, you can't tell it's me. The first time I did Hitchhikers for Dirk, I played the um, immigration officer on the planet, Now What? And there was such a heavy electronic process on my voice, it could have been absolutely anybody. There's no way of telling it was me. But funnily enough, the bit I was listening to over and over again was they got John Marsh back to do the voiceover for the end titles, who did the voiceover and all the end titles on Hitchhikers in the 70s. And the bit I kept listening to was him saying my name. <laughs> And as the immigration officer, they go, oh, uh, yeah, play that bit again. But no, it was great fun. It was great fun listening back to it. It really was. And um, yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll take anything with, with, with Doctor Who in the title, quite frankly. What I'd really like to do is write for them. If you're listening to this, guys, I would like to write for some big finish. I've had some ideas. You know, I wouldn't mind doing some more. I mean, we've only done the two, but I'd really like to write for them because I've got some good ideas for them. So Mitch, obviously the moment at the time of recording, you are in Edinburgh. Can you maybe tell us about what you're appearing in and also where people can find out more? My show is called, appropriately enough, It's About Time. Because it's about time and it's about time because I've been gone for three years, you know, because there kind of hasn't really been a finish for three years. Um, and the show is just discussing time in all its, you know, forms and ramifications about sort of the passage of time as we experience it ourselves, you know, the relativity of time on a, a sort of an astrophysical level and, um, you know, the uh, the effect of time on culture, you know, and, and uh, with, you know, with hilarious consequences, you know. But that's always that's always how my shows work. I, when I'm trying to come up with an idea for a show, I think to myself, rather than thinking about, you know, what's funny, I think, what do I know and care enough about that I can bollock on about it for an hour? And then we'll funny it up as we go along. So yeah, the funnying up process is more or less complete now, and all the gags are in place. So that is on at the Underbelly Bristol Square at 4 p.m. until the 29th, right up until the end of the festival, till Monday the 29th. So if anybody's in town or heading into town, it would be lovely to see you there. Fantastic. And where can people find out more about your sci-fi writings that are previously available and your Twitter? Mitchben.com. Uh, my Twitter is Mitch Ben. My Facebook is Mitch Ben. 
My website is mitchmen.com. You know, I'm the easiest guy in the world to find digitally. I really am. I'm not obscure. If you get, you know, if you just Google the name Mitch, I think I commented about number four behind Hedberg and the Hurricane, you know. Um, so, so, you know, you know, there was a point when I was literally at number three behind Mitch Hedberg, the late American, the late American comedian, and the uh, and 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 the, the Hurricane. So there was a time there when I was the highest ranking living human, Mitch, on uh, on, on on Google. But I, I think there's probably a few more in the meantime. But yeah, I'm I'm not a difficult man to find on the internet. <laughs> Oh, Mitch, it's been an absolute joy. It's really good to chat again. Thank you. And uh, we'll speak soon. See you soon, buddy. Bye-bye. Well, you two are just a massive pair of geeks, aren't you? <laughs> well, says the person whose Twitter handle is at Rebecca Geekout, who's also confessed to being a Star Wars and Star Trek fan, so that's you caught out. Don't accuse us of something if I hold up the mirror and you can see it in your own face, <laughs> Rebecca Chapman. Luke. What? Doesn't mean that, that, just because I'm accusing you doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you can see my Warhammer miniatures in the background of my camera. I can indeed. I can indeed. And they look great. I can see some Daleks, I think, in a TARDIS or three as well, I think. Or maybe that's me. No, I can't. Uh, no, my vision is impaired. I cannot no, see. No, there's. It's blue books that I'm looking at. I think there is oh. a TARDIS, but it's behind my fan. Oh. Um, but I went the wrong way because mirror imaging. Mm. Um, yeah. Lots of Warhammer miniatures and TARDIS. Brilliant. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had a great conversation. <laughs> we did. And I wish I had been there. But you'll be here for the next series. Sadness. Um, hopefully. Um, yeah. <laughs> As we try to get them in I've the got, can before, um, before you get back to uni stuff and such like. So, yes, let's get some done. But yeah. that's another story for another day. We're not going to reveal our plans yet. <laughs> well, now we come to our final interviewee who, like Alan Barnes, is chatting about this story for the first time. We're going to meet Kelly Ellis from Full Circle Productions to tell us about his work on doing the music and sound design on the story. And if you're listening carefully, you can hear his music playing in the background as we chat. My name is Kelly Ellis. I'm part of Full Circle and we did the music and sound design on Army of Death. First things first, yes. <laughs> Full Circle. What a great name, F-O-O-L, for the listeners who obviously can't see the way it's spelled. But where did that all come about? How did yes. Full Circle form and who are you both? Do you know, I can't quite remember where the name came from. It was one of those kind of sort of strange sort of pun things that stuck in my head and I'm dyslexic so I probably didn't notice for a while that it was actually spelt wrong uh, and I just like the you know the the, the the imagery of the kind of the fall and things like that but yeah it was me and my uh, my production partner Steve Steve McNichol we met oh many many decades ago in uh, Anderton's music shop in, in Guildford where we had a passion for recording and things and uh, and from that kind of passion we built a recording studio uh, and we didn't actually knew, know what we were doing but we, we we found a building we built a recording studio and we sort of we really learned on the job as it were literally from the sound design and the soundproofing and, and getting equipment and this was pre-internet so we had actually no help with 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 working out what to do or YouTube videos or any of that, it, it really was making up as we went along. Um, and then we both ended up going to university and studying record production and sound engineering and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that was sort of the, the start of Full Circle, that uh, me and Steve sort of, we, 
um, he, he went off and, and had a sort of a big career working with some big acts, um, programming and sort of production and engineering. And, and I went and followed a different path. And, and then we sort of, we, uh, we sort of, and then we, we, we built another studio up in, in Hampton, in, in London, in an island on the Thames. And, um, we built it right at the wrong time when sort of the, the recording industry had sort of collapsed. No one wanted big recording studios anymore, <laughs> so that sort of ended. And we sort of richly wrapped on that. And uh, I was I'd been listening to sort of big finish stuff since you know um, since the first one, Sirens of Time, and uh, was a, a big Doctor Who fan. And uh, and I, and I think I toyed toyed around with a sort of a, a rough version of the theme or something. And uh, when I was in, in our studio and and just i just sort of sent it to, to big finish and to, to nick and we got a reply and they said yeah would you would you like to do a some music and yeah we really wanted to do music that but that's always been our, our kind of thing and they said you know do you want to do some music and sound design and that was for uh, cyberman 2 the series cyberman 2 so that was a that was a real in at the deep end four hour mini series and we we, we had never done anything quite like it i mean we were confident with the, the technology and the production and music and all of that and and those kind of things you know that didn't phase us but um, learning to do sound design pretty much on the go I mean I'd done a, a small bits and pieces you know I knew the form of it um, but to just sort of go straight into a deep end uh, on Cyberman 2 was I mean that was it was amazing absolutely amazing um, and we learned a lot and, and then we progressed through um, Cyberman 2 and then we did um, the first two series of Jago and Lightfoot and we did the first series of Graceless um, and then we graduated onto Doctor Who and we started with um, Industrial Evolution I think with uh, with Colin with L60 um, and then I think we did a couple more and then came Army of Death. You've worked your way up you definitely learned the ropes and uh, did it the right way. Yes. I have to say that you did mention that you're a Doctor Who fan. Do you remember the first time you saw the TV movie? Oh, the TV movie, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I can't remember where I when if it was. Was it out on TV uh, like video first? Or was it it was. It was released oh, on Wednesday the twenty second of May and was shown on TV on Monday the twenty seventh. I, I mean, I, I know I, I watched it absolutely as soon as I could, I possibly could, and I, I mean, I can remember it being. I can remember the first trailers popping on. You know, the, you know, he's back and it's about time. I remember that, and. Uh, you know the front cover of Doctor Who magazine, especially you know when it was announced with uh, Paul McGann with his sort of short haircut holding some crystal ball or something. I, you know, it was like, wow, Doctor Who's coming back. And I'd, I'd grown up with I'm, I'm the age where my Doctor was Peter Davidson. That was that was that was how I you know I, I remember nostalgically that era so viscerally the the Fifth Doctor era. And my, I mean my first memory is you know the fourth dog tom falling off that kind of you know which i thought was a pylon at the time you know and turning into that nice vet on the telly you know that that was such a, a strong memory for me and i was then hooked and then i was absolutely into you know the fifth doctor and i sort of slightly waned with colin a bit and six and but then again i was really into doctor Who when when uh, sylvester came especially that sort of the last season as a lot of people did it it kind of re-energized you know everyone oh you know the curse of fenric and you know, ghost light and all those and, and survival and you know, it was like, oh this is this is really good. And then obviously the BBC pulled the plug and it was like but it kind of there was something inside that sort of kept the fuel going in me. And I was one of those guys who I really got into the new adventures when they came out. It was just yeah. like, you know, I, I absolutely 
loved Sylvester's Seventh Doctor and, and where the new adventures took him was and, and I was hit in that age where I wanted something a bit more you know a bit more gritty a bit more in depth a bit more interesting and, and those new adventures some were a bit hit and miss but they, it, 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 the, the tone was absolutely exactly what I felt Doctor Who for me was right at that time and I can remember getting Doctor Who monthly every month and there was hints oh it's coming back oh it isn't oh it's coming back oh it isn't then all of a sudden there was that photo of, of, of Paul McGann holding that crystal ball and it was like oh my god you know Doctor Who's coming back you know in a strange kind of way half BBC or half American production or whatever it was I mean it was yeah. like uh, and then I remember the first sort of there was a leaked photo of the TARDIS and it was like wow this looks this looks fascinating you know I, I was really really excited about TV movie but also I was slightly sad because I knew that obviously you know I was hoping that Sylvester would somehow come back and then it was you know they announced that he would get his regeneration scene which is I was I was I was thrilled <laughs> I was thrilled that Sylvester got his his send-off in the TV movie. I mean, he, he, you know, he looked fantastic. His costume looked fantastic. He's just, that's how I picture the, the Seventh Doctor, especially when I've done Seventh Doctor audios. That's how I see him in my head when I've been doing them, you know, with the red waistcoat and the kind of slightly tweedy coat. That's my darker Seventh Doctor. So, and then Paul McGann. And yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I remember the movie. Um, um, again, it was slightly hit and miss. It had good points and it had bad points um, I, it's funny enough I actually watched it not so long ago because my friend had never seen it it was around New Year and I remember, I thought oh yeah that's that happens over New Year's Eve let's let's, let's stick that on yeah so certain bits of data the TARDIS still looks wonderful I just I my favourite control room I, I adore that control room uh, so when Army of Death came up, and it was just like, oh, that's it. I'd love to, you know, I want to do some scenes in that control room. We got was a tiny bit in the TARDIS, but it was just, I would have liked, I'd like to have, have done a little bit more exploring that kind of TARDIS in my head. Oh, no, I mean, I absolutely love Paul McGann. I just, I just think his, his casting was brilliant, you know. He just was the, I think, the perfect role at the time. I think, I think it was, it was someone like Russell T. David or Stephen Moffat. I think it was Russell T. David, Davis, I think, said that to him, Paul McGann sort of represented almost the classic sort of doctor with his frock coat and the, the sort of the long hair and the whole kind of sort of steampunky Victoriana kind of H.T. Wells kind of thing. And I know obviously when I think Doctor Who came back, Christopher Eccleston, I, I think it was almost like, you know, you get the feeling, you know, Russell T. Davis put a picture of Paul McGann's doctor up and went, we're going to do the opposite of it. You know, even though I think that, you know, Russell T. Davis has lots of, you know, everyone has lots of respect for Paul McGann and and it was great to see him obviously come back in Night of the Doctor. You know, that blew my socks off when I first saw that. It was like, that's so cool to see Paul, you know, properly back. You know, after working on obviously some of the Big Finish stuff and as a fan listening to a lot of the Big Finish, you know, Eighth Doctor stuff, to actually see him physically come back on screen was, was quite amazing. Really, just to, to, to go back to the question, yes, I really remember the, the, the TV movie, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So when you get the script through for Army of Death, what is your process? Is it a case of read it once and then go back again and start marking it up and thinking what effects will be needed and doodling all over a script? Or would you just go for it straight away and just read through and make notes straight away? The process sort of changed throughout working on, on, on the big finish stuff over the 10 years and dealing with scripts. But around that time, I think it was, yeah, I, I would happily sit and read the full script. You know, again, I almost wanted to read it as a viewer you know i kind of wanted to kind of get that kind of initial feel of, of what the story is 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 trying to suggest to me 
And then I would go back and, you know, make notes, especially if there was sort of either sort of anything sort of continuous that would keep happening or characters that needed certain effects or something that would have sort of continuity through it or big obvious scenes that would sort of need a bit of, of work and a bit of thought of how to do it. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing more scary for a sound designer to, you know, you get to the end of a, a scene and, and, and one tiny little line in, in brackets said you know like, like the whole world explodes or something else <laughs> and it's it looks so innocent when it's on this tiny little script line that the writer has just gone oh no, quickly you know we'll just do that and then sound designer you look at it and you think oh my god how are we gonna do that so yeah we we, we learned to kind of go through the script with a bit of a tooth comb and and, and check out those kind of things <laughs> yeah because i'd imagine that when you see things like moving armies of skeletons you're certainly thinking okay I need to find some sort of bony sound. I mean, to me, if that was me doing it, things sort of like getting sort of like bricks rubbing against each other or something like that. So what would you do if, when it comes to something like that? Yeah, from what I can remember, again, I couldn't, unfortunately, I couldn't get my, my computers backed up at the moment, so I couldn't actually get back into the old files to find out what I actually had done. But list, re-listening to it again uh, with the bone sounds. Bone sounds have always been a bit tricky. Uh, we had to do some bone sounds on the Jago and Light for a thing. I think it was just a bag of bones. And we tried so many things. We literally, we did try. We tried bricks in bags, and and you know, I mean, Steve almost got to a point when he was going, "Can we find some bones? Can we find <laughs> like a, you know, where can we get bones from?" So you know, it started going down a very dark avenue at one point uh, for, for you know for, for realism, because that's the funny thing with sound design is that. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes the thing you're trying to get the sound of doesn't sound like what people think it sounds like. And so you have to be kind of creative because sometimes you can go to all this effort to, you know, perfectly replicate what the note is. And it doesn't sound anything like what it should do. So then you have to be kind of creative and, and, and find other things and layer other things up. And some writers are a bit more forgiving than others. You know, I've, I've had the privilege with Big Finish to work with lots of great writers. And some writers are, are very good at writing for audio drama. They're very good at understanding what's strong sound design and, you know, and what's good with dialogue and everything like that. And some writers very much in their head of just writing what they want. You know, they're writing just a big film script. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes it can be, you know, you think, oh my God, you know, they're, you know, they're wanting a movie. So sometimes these sound design can get a bit sort of complicated and laboured. But going back to your question about the bones, I'm trying to think what we did. Again, we have a we have hard drives full of samples and bits and pieces. And I think it just meticulously, you know, we just went through stuff. I mean, sometimes it, it's a combination of various sounds sort of put together and sometimes it's a case of taking the microphones out and recording foley sometimes things are very specific so you need to stick a microphone in front of it and sometimes just for for, for realism I know, I know on this one it wasn't so much the bones but it was there was a lot of um, running around in in forests and stuff at the beginning and things like that and i can remember taking my recorder and big microphone stuff and there's a sort of a woodland near where I live and, and I literally, literally had to record myself running around into kind of into sort of hedges and bushes and, and, and walking and running and, and occasionally down a path you know and I've got recordings of this that when I listen back to it you know you, you, you there'll be just you know because I'd, I'd, you know, I'd have to be trying to be very quiet but then I'd hear myself you know come across some some couple walking their dog around the corner and there's a man <laughs> hoving into view with a, on the, a boom microphone trying to record himself running into hedges you know so <laughs> it can get very surreal when you're recording Foley. 
But, I can um, just picture it now. I can just picture it now. <laughs> Honest officer, I was just recording fully. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, especially when you have to go out into the outside world to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, so when you listen to it back, were there any particular things you remember hearing apart from the bones that were particularly problematic? I'm trying to think. I wrote a few, I wrote a few notes down just to <laughs> make sure when I was going, if anything popped out. I know there were the flybot things that we wanted to kind of get right, but that was, I think, more. I think we did that more in the studio with synths and things, you know, trying to get the the, the, the pitch of the of the noises as they were moving. And likewise with the, there was like a flying car as well. Oh, I was more running on gravel. It's it seems <laughs> the crazy thing with a lot of sound design. I found the, the problematic stuff isn't the kind of the, you know the the complicated mad alien stuff. It's the simple stuff of making the actual the right footsteps and the right sounds to, to get the, the actors so they don't sound like they're actually in the recording booth, you know. There's sort of this sort of magic moment I found that, you know, you, you, you're working on stuff and, and you're just hearing an actor doing the lines. And then you get the right kind of footsteps or the right kind of thing at the right level. And all of a sudden you're hearing, you know, the character in your head, in a movie in your head. So, yeah, sort of do, doing sort of bespoke footsteps and um you know rather than just uh you know sometimes you hear awful ones which is just like little click 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 <laughs> and to me they always, they always pulled me completely out of the story sort of a lot of refining throughout our time working for big finish went on trying to get the footsteps right there was nothing more distracting than footsteps being wrong it was always a bit of a a, a bane of the job you know we, we knew there was a point it was like okay it's footsteps time now <laughs> But as soon as they were in it, the, the scene that, you know, everything, you know, if you had the right kind of background noises and the right sort of footstep, it just made everything sort of glue together as, as a proper scene rather than, I don't know, it, 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 yeah, it just made it more complete. But the, uh, from the, you know, the big, the big sound stuff, I mean, I know that the, uh, the big Bone Lord at the end was again, sort of a challenge, but I, I think what we tried to do there was take the sort of the movie approach, which was, you know, we, we obviously affected the, the voice, made it deeper and boomier and things, which in itself makes it sound huge. <laughs> and the other thing is that once you start throwing so many sound design effects in, sometimes you know, it can act, it can be counterintuitive. It can it can actually start getting in the way of what you're you're hearing and understanding and getting in the way of the dialogue and things like that. Especially if there's dialogues helping with the plot, saying, oh, look, over there, there's a thing, or there's a thing, and that's happening. And the sound design, you, you support it, but you don't have to go completely overboard. You know, you let the actors do their job. It is easy, easy to sort of gild the lily and, and to just sort of force it. You know, listening to it, there was nothing that popped it out of my head that I went, oh, that was, you know, I remember that being a challenge. Everything was quite sort of fairly okay with the sound design things. Yeah. Um, so then, in terms of scoring, and what was your approach? Is it? Do you like to go thematic for different characters, or do you prefer different? Do you just prefer to take it yeah. on a scene by scene basis? First of all, we try and sort of pick sort of the tone. What was interesting coming into doing a, an Eighth Doctor story was when we'd done a, a few previous ones. I think we'd done the Elite with um, Peter's Fifth Doctor. We and with the, the work after Army of Death when we when we did a Doctor we, we very much we really wanted to replicate the era of the Doctor so you know we, we would go out of our way to find the right kind of synths and noises and, and things for that radiophonic era and what was interesting with the uh, with doing the, the Army of Death with the Eighth Doctor was obviously apart from the movie 
and obviously other, the other thing that you know other um, musicians had done throughout the, the big finish range you know in my head there wasn't like a sort of definite kind of tonal quality for sort of the eighth doctor obviously because of the, the tv movie and, and what had been done with some of the uh, the previous big finishes it, it, i felt it obviously it was more of a, an orchestral kind of sort of vibe rather than synths i don't think his doctor works with with too much radiophonic workshop bleeps and kind of whistles and all that kind of stuff so a more of a mature sort of tone we kind of wanted to to go with and i know at the time we both me and steve were were quite into um some of hans zimmer scores at the time again i think we look at you know other other places for, for, for influence and inspiration and and it, it being army of death and lots of bones i think we, we ended up watching parts of the caribbean films a few times and that's an interesting score and we were very into um, the tron legacy score which was an amazing score much better than the film score brilliant film yeah but it, again both scores had this sort of sort of you know sort of maturity and cinematic stuff without being too kind of you know dun, 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 sort, of, sort of john williamsy so and it, there was sort of elements and textures you know synthy stuff and you know, I always feel Doctor Who shouldn't be necessarily one thing score-wise. I mean, I, I was brought up on the, the 80s stuff and even 70s stuff, and I, I absolutely love all the, the synths. I, I love the music to be a bit alien. There's there's something, I think, I think one of the, the themes I wasn't massively keen on it, it, it is the movie theme, the, which was sort of just full-on sort of, sort of orchestra. Um, it was a bit, oh, because the Doctor is so alien, you kind of really want to, help that with you know the score being odd you know and that's what so was wonderful about Delia Derbyshire's theme back in the 60s it was it was odd you know it was experimental and strange and odd and you know and, and I think Doctor Who should sort of embrace that weirdness with the music because you know Star Trek and Star Wars do big orchestral stuff really well on their own you know and I kind of feel Doctor Who is a great playground to do something a bit more interesting sonically musically so when we get the chance to, we go, oh, okay, let's let's see what we can, you know, it's my own taste, you know, and I, and I think I think that's the thing for me. I've been I've been really into synths, you know. I mean, I, I play guitar; it's my main instrument. But the studio here is absolutely full of synths. Love synths. Love boxes that make weird noises. So I'm a little I'm a little biased with that. But it's like when Doctor Two came back, you know. I understand, you know. I know Russell T Davis. I think he said, you know, he didn't want any kind of you know, radiophonic score. He didn't want Jean-Michel Jarre. He didn't want any of that kind of stuff. It was like, no. So, and Murray Gold did a brilliant job throughout his tenure on, on that. And I think, you know, he did a, a good job. You know, I know I would have liked a bit more synth here occasionally, but I think it really worked well. And it really, res- you know, it resonated with the public. There's various themes that he, he wrote that kept on popping up that were, that were brilliant. They were, you know, more choral stuff and more orchestral stuff. And, and it works with the way that Doctor Who kind of grew again and i think that's brilliant although i I would love to see in the future i would i would love to see um something a bit more experimental coming back you know (laughs) just something a bit different you know i get Um, that i get that so when you listen back to the story i mean how did you how did you find it did you enjoy it because i think it's it's always interesting coming back to your work after several years and i think it's a damn good story and i think it's really the music and sound design really bring it to life and they sell it to you yeah yeah i mean it was nice I mean, I had to listen to it since I think we probably did it. And yeah, it pleasantly surprised me. It, it really did. 
it's funny because recently I've been I've been listening to various big finish stories. When I was sort of in the middle of all of it, listening to sort of stuff was it was a bit of a busman's holiday. It was so you know I couldn't quite detach myself. I would either be going oh. Would I do that there or would I do that there? And you kind of, you don't really kind of listen to it in, in the same enjoyment. But, you know, it's been it's been a few years since I've, 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 I've done a big finish. And it's and it's it's been so nice to embrace them again recently and, and re-listen. So I've been catching up with various stories that, you know, I've, I've, I've missed. So in the middle of that, to go and re-listen to Army of Death was really surprising because it almost was like a new story that I hadn't heard, even though I've remember working on it you know so that's really nice when you kind of go it almost kind of like unbiasedly you go oh that was a nice bit of music there oh I did that you know or you know and everything seems to kind of sort of fit together so it did surprise me as I said at the time it was a bit of a, a stressful production with sort of the, the deadlines and some of the issues we had at the time so it was one that had a, a you know a bit of a um, a, a bad taste in my mouth afterwards as I sort of just remember the, the stress of it but but going back completely with a clear head it was actually this is this is really enjoyable I, I hadn't got a chance to actually listen to the Mary Shelley story so I kind of want to go and re-listen to them now because <laughs> I think she was an interesting companion yeah it, it, yeah it was it was a good story but no no it's, I mean, it's always a joy I just love listening to Dave Doctor stories I mean you know he, he just is, is, is so good and Big Finish have done just marvellous things to him I, I, I love singing praises to of, of the Eighth Doctor to people who've never you know they've either vague remembrances of the TV movie or that's about it like yeah. no no he lives you know Big Finish but oh, listen brilliant stuff <laughs> and that's the whole point of this podcast to celebrate this Doctor all about the Eighth no trick absolutely Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, yeah, I, it was a, a joy to be able to work on 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 this eighth doctor. I mean, we only worked on one eighth doctor. We worked on many fifth doctors, quite several sixths and sevenths. But so it was like I was just proud to, you know, even for one story to have a bit of involvement in, in this, in this, in the especially in the, uh, the eighth doctor and the the, the, the Mary Shelley storyline at the same time which was great and, and it was nice as well with with the Mary Shelley thing you know I got to um, I wrote a, a little tiny bit of underscore when she's writing a diary and that was nice to be able to write a sort of slightly sort of thoughtful melancholic it was piece it was cello and piano and because sometimes when doing the score it, it, it's like lots of underscore so it's just drones or something scary is happening or so occasionally we, we, we get the chance to you know, write a bit of an emotive piece here and there and, and that's always a, a, a joy when it works and, and sort of the tone is right for the, for the character and everything like that. So yeah, uh, it was, impressive. yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it was enjoyable. I mean, it's funny going through it the, um, with, with the score, listening, listening to it and going, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I did that and I did that. With tonally, I mean, how, how we would normally write a score is once we've got that kind of tone in our head of kind of what we want to feel it, we then, we usually build up a, a, a palette of sounds on the computer or whatever. And then we kind of use them all the way sort of through. And even though, you know, one instrument might be just for one character or to underscore, you know, bits and pieces. Because I did notice on uh, when they moved to Garrick, I remember playing, I've got this um, baritone guitar. It's like a normal electric guitar, but everything's tuned a lot lower. And I remember I, I kind of, it was all something about the, the, the ruins of Garrick. 
So I sort of put this really, really low, kind of moody, sort of slightly twangy. You know, I sort of wanted to underscore this sort of this desolate place that had been absolutely blown up and was just ruins. So sometimes I, I, it's nice to do a bit of underscore to almost subconsciously sort of help the listener to think, oh, we're, we're somewhere else here because the music's not quite, well, you know, you're not consciously thinking that, but it just sort of helps without the pictures there in front of you saying we're somewhere else to underscore different areas slightly differently. And I know towards the end when the, um, the sort of the bone lord is forming, we went full out kind of with a choir and lots of, sort of choral stuff, which is quite fun. So, so it, it, it was quite fun to do all sorts of things in this, really. Uh, <laughs> I think it's lovely to hear just how enthused you are by it. So I really appreciate oh, yeah. you coming on and having a chat with us on the podcast. Um, pleasure, my absolute pleasure. As always, we want to thank our interviewees, Alan, Mitch and Kelly, for giving up some of their valuable time to speak with us about their work on Army of Death. Yeah, it's great stuff. Particularly, I think what Kelly did, as I mentioned earlier, with the sound design, creating those armies of skeletons and the bone lord sound, and yeah, did a great job. And it's, yeah, it's a story that I don't listen to that often, and, but I have to say I really did enjoy it because I had this on when I went for a very long Sunday. No, it was a Saturday morning stroll, had it on, went out for about two and a half hours and uh, got about 12, 13 miles done in that time and loved it. So, yes, most enjoyable. And of course, if you've enjoyed this week's Pieces of Eighth or indeed any episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes and a rating and stuff because it really does help us and it means more people can find our episodes and it's always really appreciated. So next week, our 13-part season comes to a close with episode 28. And we've already told you what it's about. Yeah, we're a bit like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a trilogy in six parts now, isn't it? Or is it five? Does the Owen Call for Book count? Oh, hang on. It's six. Six. There are six. And then it's now... Is now yeah, part six. Six. Sorry, I'm reading. I've got them right next to me on my bookshelf. Yeah, yeah, it's now in six <laughs> um, parts because Douglas yeah. Adams did five, and then yeah, Owen Colfer added, and then yes, you've got the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the Restaurant at the End of the Universe, Life, the Universe, and Everything. So long and thanks for all the fish, mostly harmless, and then and another thing by Ian yes, Colfer. <laughs> that's the one. Anyway, this has been our version of Doctor Who season eighteen and TV. As in, we've got 20 episodes and we're now coming to a close, but hopefully neither of us is going to regenerate into Peter Davison at the end. And as Becca said, we're going to be I don't know, I'd like a piece of celery. Well, you could actually just go to the supermarket and get it without actually having to go through the pain of dying. Uh, so yes, I'd be inclined to go for uh, a trip to the supermarket. But yes, as Becca said, we're going to be chatting about the new Doctor Who action figures. Uh, we're going to be joined by Al Dewar from Character Options. And you can hear how someone on this podcast actually played a part in this new set being created. <coughs> so until then, I've been Kenny Smith with a really bad cough. I was just about to say, was that your cough from your uh, Jadoon voice earlier? <laughs> no, it's my but... cough from uh, not at all having played a part in this new set that's going to be available in BNM. Oh, <coughs> uh, it's, it's, it's the... <clears throat> I didn't do... <clears throat> <clears throat> Well, um, I wasn't still around, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Except you're not. Anyway, we'll be back next week. And we'll see you then for the final part in this run. Bye-bye, everybody.